Section 31 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16, The Gathering of the Clouds, Part 1. The revolt of Parma called for Frederick's immediate presence, and he was compelled to abandon his march to Lyon. He turned back from Turin with black rage in his heart, and swore to visit the traitor city with a terrible vengeance. From the days of his grandfather Barbarossa, the emperors had cherished Parma as a city-state, whose loyalty was excelled by none in northern Italy, and the Parmese had ever been foremost in sending their knights to aid the emperors against their foes. Frederick himself had been lavish with his favors to the city. He had extended its territories and enlarged its privileges. If Parma had turned against him, where could he look for loyalty and faith? The defection of the city was a severe blow to his material power. Many great roads of commercial and strategical importance converged on its marketplace. Its territory, situated in the fertile valley of the Po, yielded a rich harvest of grain. The wealth of its merchants enabled it to put a large force of soldiers into the field. Its walls were stout, the hearts of its citizens stouter still. The accession of so powerful an ally gave fresh courage to the Guelphs, and reinforcements soon commenced to pour into the city, which was preparing for the inevitable siege. The Count of San Bonifazio arrived with his Mantuan levies. Three hundred knights with their attendant infantry came from Piacenza. The legate Gregory of Montelengo brought a thousand knights from Milan. The Marquis of Esti brought more troops from Ferrara. Genoa sent three hundred crossbowmen and the Count of Lavagna a larger force. Parma herself contributed a thousand knights. Walls which were defended by such a garrison were not likely to be quickly overthrown. The emperor arrived at Cremona on the last day of June and was joined by Eccelino de Romano, who had hastened thither from the Trevisan march. King Enzo was already in the neighborhood, with Count Lancia and every man that Cremona could furnish under his banner. Frederick of Antioch came from Tuscany. There were men from Apulia, Burgundy, and Germany, and a great force of Frederick's Saracen soldiers. The imperial army numbered ten thousand knights and a countless host of infantry and bowmen. The beleaguer of so large a city as Parma, whose forces were concentrated while those of Frederick were dispersed in the effort to encircle the walls, was a long and laborious process. Many were the skirmishes and conflicts, stubborn defenses of roads and bridges, desperate endeavors to break the ring of the besieging army. Victory in these minor engagements fell now to one side, now to the other. But slowly and surely, Every means of communication between the city and the outer world was barred by the emperor's captains, and the citizens began to grow fearful as their reserves of food and water dwindled away. If Frederick, hardened and embittered by the adverse incidents of recent years and mightily incensed against the Parmese themselves, was cruel and merciless in his warfare, his enemies were no more gentle in their methods. He conceived the idea of demonstrating his wrath against the rebels by daily beheading two captives in front of the city walls. Fourteen had thus perished in the sight of their friends before he relented and put a stop to the spectacle. The Parmese, if they suspected men or women of acting as the emperor's spies, 
would torture them until they confessed to guilt and then burn them in the public square. By the end of 1247, the emperor had almost surrounded Parma with his works, and at the strongest point of his fortifications had erected a castle and commenced to build a city around it. Houses and ramparts were constructed, and the river which supplied Parma with water was diverted to feed a canal for the benefit of the new city. It bore the haughty name of Vittoria, and in its castle was stored all the treasure which Frederick had collected for the campaign. Its mint issued golden coins, and within its ramparts were stored vast quantities of provisions, arms and tents, and many military engines. The besieged town, completely isolated from its friends, gave up all hope of relief. The Guelphs of northern Italy could give it no more assistance. They had sent their troops to aid in its defense, but they dare not advance to its succor when so formidable an army, under the victor of Corte Nuova, must first be encountered in the open field. The surrender of the city could not be long delayed. Its non-militant populace was starving, the soldiers themselves commenced to tighten their belts. Desperate sallies were made, but were beaten back with heavy losses. The imperial army, confident of a speedy victory, grew careless and relaxed its vigilance. One fatal morning, on the 18th of February, 1248, Frederick rode out of Vittoria with some of his knights on a hunting expedition. An hour afterwards some Milanese and Placentines sallied from the southern gate of Parma, and Lancia, with a great body of cavalry, left Vittoria to support the imperial troops at the point of attack. The sally was merely a feint. Montalengo gathered together every available man in the city and dashed at Vittoria. It was a forlorn hope, and the desperate citizens resolved to perish rather than return to starvation. Thaddeus of Suessa was in command at Vittoria, and was at first inclined to scorn all thought of danger. What, he cried, have the rats left their holes? But the fortifications, denuded of a large portion of the garrison, were unable to withstand the furious onslaught of the Parmese. The hunger-maddened crowd swept over the ditches and walls and hewed the defenders down. Thaddeus of Suessa was seized and torn limb from limb. The imperial troops were overwhelmed with panic and fled, pursued by the Lombard knights. The victorious citizens worked their will on Vittoria. Inestimable stores of treasure fell into their hands. Money and jewels, vessels of gold and silver, robes of silk and precious fabrics, even the very crown of the empire with the scepter and the imperial seals. The crown was seized by a Parmese dwarf, who placed it on his head and strutted derisively through the streets of the jubilant city. The emperor, taking his pleasure in the chase, saw far away on the horizon the flames of his burning castle and town. He mounted his charger and spurred toward the scene of disaster. He had galloped but a few miles when he was met by a vast multitude of his soldiers flying in disorderly terror from the pursuing foe. He dashed into their midst strove vainly to rally them, but was himself swept backward and onward by their impetuous rush far along the road to Cremona. That city whose streets had so often rung with the clamor of welcome and ovation now received with gloomy silence the frowning emperor 
who entered in the evening at the head of his shamefaced army. The Cremonese had lost their Carroccio and many of their best men in the fall of Vittoria. One angry burgher shouted out, You too, Emperor, ought to have your head struck off, since you left Vittoria for those accursed sports of yours. His fellows expected to see him dragged away to the gallows, but the emperor bore the reproach in silence. Hard words were nothing after the humiliation of that day. Loud were the exaltations of the Guelphs. Parma might henceforth be called Palma. She was the chief shield and defense of the church. The emperor had been forsaken by his familiar devils, Beelzebub and Ashtaroth, the capture of the pretty dears of his harem had grieved his heart beyond all the men and treasures he had lost. Let Brescia and Milan rejoice. Let Genoa, Piacenza, Mantua, Venice, and Ancona break forth into joy. Woe to Pavia, the modern Babylon, to Pisa, the handmaid of Pilate, to Cremona howling over the loss of her carroccio. Even the Pope contributed an appropriate verse. Vittoria, vanquished thou dost lie, that Christ his name may glorify. The emperor's pride had received a mortal wound, but his arm had not yet lost its weight nor his name its terror. A few days after their victory, the Parmese, supported by eighty-seven ships which had come up the Po from Mantua and Ferrara, made an attempt to destroy a bridge which Frederick had erected across the river. The rumor suddenly spread through their ranks that the emperor was approaching, and one and all incontinently fled, leaving the ships to be seized by the Cremonese. They had reoccupied many castles in the neighborhood, but were quickly driven back into their city by Frederick and his captains, and the imperial army again encamped on the site of Vittoria. Innocent, alarmed at the quick recovery of the emperor's cause, exhorted all the Guelphic cities to hasten to the assistance of Parma, and issued numerous excommunications against the supporters of Antichrist. Frederick himself had already been adequately cursed, but now anathemas were launched against his sons and grandsons, and all states and nobles and clergy who should send their envoys to his court. King Louis, who passed through Lyon on his way to the Crusades, made one last effort to intercede for Frederick. The emperor, he said, had promised to join him in Palestine if the pope would annul the sentence of Lyon. But Innocent replied that peace should never be made while Frederick and his brood held the empire. Holy Father, cried Louis, the ruin of the Holy Land will lie at your door. As for Frederick, he had abandoned the hope of securing justice from that old serpent, that good shepherd of the church. He avowed that he would never again seek for peace until it was sought from him. We who read and examine into the annals of history, writes Matthew Paris, never found such an instance of intense and inexorable hatred as that which existed between Frederick and the Pope. The emperor was still in the neighborhood of Parma in June. The Milanese and Placentines marched out against him but fled by night at his approach. In July, he left the command at Cremona in the hands of Enzo, and himself proceeded northwards to Piedmont. The Marquis of Montferrat was induced to return to his allegiance by the burning of his castles and the wasting of his lands. Vercelli surrendered to the emperor without a struggle, and here he stayed for the remainder of the year. End 
of section 31.